church is very special to me and to our whole church. Um, we pray for you. We think of you often, and, um, and we, are, we are a sister church not too far away. Um, but uh, the opportunity to be here this morning is, is a grace of God, and so I'm thankful for it. Go ahead and grab your Bibles with me, if you would. Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians this morning. I know that you guys have been in 1 Corinthians uh, I'm going to skip ahead a bit in 2 Corinthians because that's where our church is right now. We've been studying through 2 Corinthians. And as we've been studying through 2 Corinthians, the things that we've been highlighting as we go through is how the book of 2 Corinthians actually shows us the kingdom mindset in light of a worldview. So in other words, we believe and act on our beliefs in a way that is completely contrary sometimes to the world around us. And it makes a lot of sense right now when you go out in the world and it seems like the value systems that you're surrounded with and the structure of the world around you is, seems to be a complete different set of values. The Christian worldview is actually upside down from that of the world around us. And so that's the idea that we've been highlighting as we go through 2 Corinthians. Uh, let's go to chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to start in verse 13. So in chapter 4, Paul's in the middle of, of what seems to be an encouragement to the believers. He's writing an encouragement to the believers in Corinth. And he's telling them earlier on in this chapter, chapter 4, to not lose heart. Do not lose heart because they seem like they're up against a lot. But to keep proclaiming Jesus Christ, even though some people don't hear it, and even though it seems like absolute hogwash to the people around them. But the main idea that he's been encouraging them with is that the power of their message, the power that lies within their message, comes from God alone. It has nothing to do with them. It doesn't matter how well they deliver it. It doesn't matter how great they are. The power of their message lies in something completely else. In fact, their power relies on their weakness, their ability to let God's power work through them. Well, let's start off in verse 13. It says this, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul is quoting here, if you'll notice, there's a certain part where it has quotation marks. Paul's quoting uh, one of the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 116 right here. Now, what he's doing here is, is he's quoting that to tie our words to our beliefs. We believe, and so we speak. Or maybe to rephrase it, we speak what we believe. There's a quick and small point in light of the context of what we're about to read in this chapter. But as we go through it, you can't miss this. He brings it up for a purpose. I always, when we talk about Paul, I always remind us that the intentionality of every single word is there. He says things for a purpose. And so when he says this, we need to take a moment and say, what is he talking about? We shouldn't ignore it. What he's saying is words are important. One of the most important things that we do is we speak and we write words. 
God set speech, God set words at, at a high place. He gave them a high place in this world, and He did so as He created the world. As He spoke it into being, one of the first things that God ever does in this world is what? He speaks. He uses His Word to create. The Word comes first. So, it's been said many times before, right, the actions speak louder than words, right? We've, we all have heard that many times before, and, and there's an element of truth absolutely to that. I'm not trying to argue against that, but I would say this, is that words have power. The speech that we use, the, the words that we speak to others have an intense power, and God has willed it to be so. Words are things that have power to shape the way that we think. Think about any idea that's ever been communicated to you, any thought, it's done so with words. Any kind of philosophy or worldview or anything is communicated through the means of words. And so words are incredibly important. So whether we like it or not, and oftentimes we don't, the way we talk speaks to the way that we believe. Those things are tied together. We don't get to talk in this way and believe in this way. What we say comes from our heart. Even the times when we're not speaking directly about our faith. Even when we're talking about something like work or football or whatever it is, the way in which we speak is always a light to the beliefs that are in our heart. Paul's saying their, sh their speech should indicate that, th that they believe what? Let's look back at the text. They believe that there is a very real hope for the world to come. And that hope specifically is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul covered this in, in his other letter, which you guys are going through right now. I'm not sure where you're at, but in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he talks about this there in verse 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, and if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So that's out of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is very clear here. Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection of his people. He even ups the ante here and says that Christianity only helps, if Christianity only helps us with this life, if it only makes this life better, then we should be pitied because we have absolutely wasted our lives. Our hope is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus. I remember saying a long time ago, and, and a long time ago, I felt that I was incredibly wise in this, and I see that it's really foolish, but, you know, younger in my life, I said, you know, even if Jesus and God weren't actually real, even if the resurrection wasn't real, I would still be a Christian because the Christian faith has boundaries for human beings to thrive. And it sets a, a way in which 
you can thrive in this world and work within a moral structure. Now, I thought that was wise. Paul says it's foolish. Paul's actually saying that that is absolutely foolish. He's saying just the opposite. Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus wasn't real, if he didn't die, if he didn't raise from the dead, and if you don't have belief that you will have life after death, your faith is useless, absolutely useless. But Jesus was, in fact, raised. And we, in fact, do have hope. We have hope of a life to come, right? Of a, of a new world, even more than that. That hope is the, is the fuel for us to be able to speak so boldly in this life. We rely on that hope to help us to be able to speak boldly to others about our hope. We are to spread that hope to the glory of Jesus as his gospel spreads and produces fruit. That's what he's saying here. So he continues. 2 Corinthians 4, we're down verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here, Paul begins teaching uh, by using a series of metaphors. So he's going to start off using metaphors and in kind of a paradox here, two seemingly opposite things that he proposes to be ultimately true. The first thing he uses is he talks about the outer self wasting away while inside we are growing stronger and stronger. The physical nature, the outer person is wasting away, but we are renewed and sustained by something greater in the inner self. And no, he's not referring to inside our bodies. He's referring to something completely self, but he, or completely other, but he uses the terms inner self to show us something that is different that we can't see. Now, these are very different things, right? In the natural wor world, this is not how we perceive things. As we grow older, all things wear out. I could feel that in my knees as I got out of bed this morning. Our bodies wear thin. Everything that we see around us is in a slow decay. But not so with the Christian life. Paul argues, what we see and perceive is not necessarily all that there is. In fact, there is something eternal and something glorious, something that doesn't wear away. And he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And he says that that is beyond all comparison. Some of my absolute favorite words in this chapter, maybe in this whole book. This is such a strong statement. Early in the chapter, he's referenced to the sufferings. That's what he's got just, just finished doing. He's referenced the sufferings that he has encountered in, in spreading the gospel, in his missionary journeys. He's listed off some of the things that he's been through. And then now he talks about, but this light momentary affliction, like, like it's nothing, right? 
even though he went at length to list all of the things that he has gone through. He referenced all the sufferings that his, his missionary companions have also endured, and now he tells them that it's a light and momentary thing. This verse parallels really well with what the apostle also wrote in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. I'm sorry, revealed to us. I don't want to misquote scripture there. He, he isn't saying that, that he is, what he's been through is easy. He's not saying that all of those things that he listed off were nothing. But he's saying in light of what is to come, he doesn't mind one bit going through those trials and those sufferings. Those things are practically nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed in the life to come. That's an interesting way of putting it because it doesn't belittle our struggles. It doesn't say to someone that, that you are struggling uh, through cancer and going through chemotherapy and this is nothing, right? It doesn't say that as you lose a, lose a, a, a loved one that, that that's no big deal. It says these things are absolutely tragic. They are wrong. They are not the way that things should be. And we can accept that, but also know that we have a hope that outweighs them, completely outweighs them. It would be one thing to say that the, like the sufferings that you endure in this world will equal out in the next life. That would be one thing to say. And that's, that's a very typical religious thing to say kind of common to many religions is that the things that you go through here will be repaid to you in the next life. That's a very basic religious comfort that most religions share, but that is not the gospel. That's not what's being said here. The gospel says that we receive in the life to come that the things that we will receive are in no way proportionate, no way proportionate to anything that we have possibly experienced in this life. So that not only gives us hope for getting through this life struggles, it gives us joy in knowing that there is something so much better to come. There is something that we do not understand that is glorious to come. But this text, instead of the Romans text, goes a little bit further. Like what he says that, that in, in Romans chapter 8, he says that, that they're not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. In this text, in 2 Corinthians, he goes a little bit further. He says that the trials of this life, the sufferings of this life, are precisely what is being used to produce that glory. He's saying it's actually the light momentary afflictions, those things are actually tools in the hands of God. That really goes a lot further when you kind of look at that. That means that, that cancer, that death that pain and suffering are actually tools in the hands of a loving God. Now, that's a much bigger view of God's sovereignty than I can honestly quite understand. That, that goes beyond the expanse of my mind. It's a much bigger view of God. The idea that God can take our pain and suffering and death and turn them into glory, that doesn't compute with me. Now, a God who can bless because he is good, 
a God who, who uses all the good things to bless and do well, I can wrap my mind around that because I have a, a concept of what is good, right? I can wrap my mind around that, but, but a God who even though is at no fault for the bad things in the world, even though he didn't create sin, can still use all of the effects of sin to produce eternal glory? That's a lot bigger than I previously gave him credit for. It's easy for us because we can picture a God that we can wrap our minds around. Right? We can't picture a sovereign God. It makes, it makes more sense for us to picture Jesus of Nazareth ascended and on a throne, delivering good to good, right? Saving and all of that. It's almost easier for us to talk about him turning water into wine than it is for us to talk about turning death and pain into glory. But that's precisely what he does. So it's a bigger sovereign idea of who God is. Our God not only directs and sustains everything that is good, but even the bad things of this world have to bow down at his feet and worship him. Even the bad things of this world must do his will. That will is to produce an eternal weight of glory in you. I love the word that he uses here, weight, the weight of glory, because it's, it, it kind of expands my idea. When I talk about glory, I can think of like a bright shining sun, right? Just something just so, or just something so beautiful that you want to tell other people about it. But something that has an eternal weight, that, sh that shows a word picture to me that actually talks about my, that tells me that my afflictions, my temporary sufferings, whatever this world gives to me, whatever this life hands out to me is absolutely crushed under the weight of that glory. Whatever it's like. The weight of glory. He's showing us something so weighty, so wonderful that our trials are just crushed underneath it. And so Paul uses another paradox here. First, he puts the outward self and the inward self in, in, in the same sentence. Now, he's talking about the seen and the unseen. The seen and the unseen. We don't look to what is seen. That doesn't make sense. We don't look to what is seen, but we look to what is unseen. He's causing us to stumble a little bit and go, wait, what? What is he talking about? Because he says, everything that you can see is transient. In other words, everything that you can see will fade away. Everything you can see is temporary. It's by nature not permanent. It is actively wasting away. But what is unseen, he says, is what is eternal. So he's pitting the physical world with all that we can see and feel and experience against the unseen world. And what he's doing, he's, he's arguing that the unseen world is actually more real, more weighty than what we can see. If what we can see is going to pass away and we'll have to remember it, 
what is to come is something that is eternal and more real than what we can experience even right now. C.S. Lewis does a really good job of this in, in this story, The Great Divorce. Um, it's an interesting story. It's just a story, but it kind of talks about some of the ideas of on, you know, going on the way to heaven. And, and as people get closer to heaven, things become more real. And they find that they themselves are less real in light of the realness around them. Things become more dense and more thick, and they realize that they are the ones that are transparent as they get closer and are made new. <clears throat> Heaven is a place that is infinitely more real than our world. So Paul's argument is very much the same. But on the contrary, our world and we, by association, because we live in this world, Always view the physical as something very concrete and real, but the spiritual and the unseen is something of a, something of a reflection of what the physical once was, right? We kind of picture things like ghosts and things like that as, as something that is like see-through. What is after this life must be a reflection of what this life was. It's not true at all. We need to look towards to what is unseen. That's great, isn't it? How do I do that? Because he's not, he's not giving us very specific instructions here. He's saying, look to what is unseen. <clears throat> That's not something I can do because I can't see it. <clears throat> How do I set my eyes on the unseen? I, he's using a metaphor here, but he's great at using these metaphors to teach us something that is eternal and true. <clears throat> To kind of dwell on this a little bit, it helps us to look back at the Old Testament, look at Numbers, uh, Numbers 21, and I'll just read to you. It's a very short story. You'll, you'll remember it. It's a very short story, maybe like a paragraph in Numbers chapter 21, but you might remember a super short story about the Israelites in the wilderness and Moses, and then these fiery serpents are everywhere, right? And the fiery serpents are biting people and people are dying from the bites. So Moses goes to the Lord. Well, actually, first, the people repent. And they go to Moses and say, help us. Well, what does God tell Moses to do? First, he had to make a bronze serpent on a post. And then what did he have to do? He had to lift that up in the air so that all people could see it. So people on the plane of their existence, in their suffering, in their snake bites, and in their death could look up and see this bronze serpent. Seems to be a weird thing to have a serpent lifted up to save from serpents. But Jesus does a really good job of tying that together for us in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, 14, Jesus says to this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So Jesus is lifted up on a cross, but He also has to be lifted up above the horizon of our mind's eye. And that's how we look to what is unseen. We have to, in our priorities, in our thoughts, lift Jesus up above the horizon of things of this world. He's not on par He's not a replacement for anything. He is 
high above. And when we start to lift our, our thoughts towards this Jesus who is above everything else, as Jesus said, we receive eternal life. We have to bring our focus and our attention to Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his promises. My favorite old hymn, you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's great. The truth being communicated is that the more that we value the eternal, namely the eternal one, we don't value the life to come. We value the one who gave it to us, right? The life to come is given to us by the one who is eternal. But the more that we do that, the better that we live this life. But if our values are set on this horizon, if, if our goals are, are set on things of this world, in this world, created by this world, if this is where we set our goals, we are setting our eyes on things that are actively decomposing. We are putting investments into things that are rapidly depreciating. So Paul now, in this same thought, continues to talk about this, but turns his sight toward the moment of death. He gets a little morbid on us here. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent of our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our, earth, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed, we, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be full, further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. <clears throat> so again, Paul is, is going to whip out some metaphors for us, right? Some word pictures to teach us. First, he uses an idea of an earthly tent. And he contrasts that with the idea of an eternal, heavenly dwelling created by God. And then also, he talks about being clothed or being found naked. The idea of a tent, though, is a common one, very common at that time, very close to Paul, since he often made his living for his missionary journeys by making, repairing tents. But what's interesting here is that the picture of the tent is uniquely special to the people of Israel as well. The idea of the, the tent ties very closely to their history. So new believers who have been reading the Scripture and Israelites who have been you know, learning anything about their history. When you start talking about a tent, they're gonna, it's going to make sense. The picture of a tent is obviously something flimsy, something not permanent. 
but it also brings up the, imag the imagery of the Old Testament, very familiar with Jewish believers. So they were often a people in tents, a people without home, constantly on the move in a nomadic lifestyle uh, from Abraham to the Israelites out of Egypt, right? They lived in tents. The tent was a dwelling that symbolized their existence as a people without a home. The tent was the symbol of their having a home, not yet. Having a home, but not having it yet. So when he brings up this imagery, it ties well. It ties very well. They had a home. It was not theirs yet. Therein lies the continuity between them and us now. We're not at home in this world. Or at least we shouldn't be. We should not be at home in this world. The end of the last chapter tried to convince us that there was something better beyond this life. But what he's really talking about here is what happens if and when we die. Last I checked, life has a 100% mortality rate. So it's something that all of us have to, we must deal with at some point when we at some point in our life. This, above all, is the question of life. Every philosopher, every philosophy, every system of thought, every theology has had to grapple with what happens when you die. And every single one of us have to answer that question if we are to live in this world. Now, the world around us has spent enormous amounts of time and money and resources in postponing death and, and sterilizing it. Um, what I mean is we don't talk about it very often. We don't like to talk about it because if you do, you're considered morbid or depressing. And when it does happen, we have today so many processes in place that we don't actually have to deal with death as much as people in the past did. We make a phone call and the death is removed from us as quickly as possible. There's nothing wrong with any of that necessarily. I'm not saying all these things are, are wrong. Certainly, spending time and, and money and utilizing scientific advances is wise in prolonging and improving life. I mean, I'd be a fool to say otherwise. I'm an asthmatic I'm a person who relies on a steroid inhaler to be able to talk and walk and sing and breathe. A moderately bad cold could have killed me when I was younger, but I had medicine. So these things are not bad. That's not my point. What the apostle is saying is that we as Christians know something. We know something about death that the world around us doesn't. Look at verse 1. We know he doesn't say hope, does he? He said, we know that when this body finally fades, we already have something greater waiting for us. If we look back and read verse 1 carefully, if this, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building. It doesn't say will have. It doesn't say might have. 
but it says that we already have a permanent home. And it said God himself is the one that builds that house. Not with hands. Something eternal. Now the world around us spends all of its money and time trying either to prolong life or escape thoughts of it. And I don't blame them. Because if this world is all that there really is in reality, if this is the only reality, the only real joy would be in entertainment and temporary pleasures and escaping death as long as we possibly could. That would be the only point. But how empty those things leave us. And we all know this to be 100% true. Anything that you find that is that, that gives you pleasure or distracts you or entertains you for a while in this world is never enough. We can enjoy something and then we want to go right back to it and more. Why? Because it's not the real point. God created pleasures for us, but he didn't create them to be worshipped. He didn't create them to be our only purpose in this world. So what the text is trying to communicate by the clothing analogy, he says that we are going to be clothed further, not being found naked. Well, again, he's focusing his eyes on, on, on the idea of death. He's, he's talking about the moment of death. That we will be clothed further and not be found naked. When the tent of this earthly body wears out, we aren't going to be left as some free-floating spirit without a home. We're not going to be left to some existence that is a shadow of what it was. We're not going to be left on our own to figure anything out. He's saying we won't be found naked after this life. We will be further clothed with something that God has created, created for us. We don't continue existence without a home. He's saying we're not going to be homeless at death. And even more, we groan or we sigh longing for the life to come. This life to come is not some second-rate existence. It's often depicted, right? We aren't going to be spirits longing to go back to the world that we came from. We're not going to be spirits longing to inhabit the bodies that we used to have. That idea would be ridiculous because right now our bodies groan with a longing for that life to come. Again, getting out of the bed this morning, I feel that. That idea that your body is slowly wearing out is a gift from God to help you realize that this is not immortal. There is something better. God uses, again, something bad, the deteriorating of your joints and your knees and your body and your heart. He uses the deteriorating of those things to point you to Him. He says, I have something better for you. Verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we can make a few safe assumptions here about what happens to us when we die, can't we? There's, there's a couple things that he's laying out that are, that are things that we can actually hold on to. First, we aren't abandoned to nothingness or some disembodied state. And second, we have a home with God. That after this life, we will be reunited with the Lord. To be away from this body is to be at home with the Lord. The experience that we have in this body is, is a separation from the Lord. But in the life to come, we will be with God in ways that we cannot yet experience in this life. The point of all this is, is that we can be, as they are, of good courage. That's the whole point. He's encouraging us to remember we have something better. And you think about it, the worst thing that can happen to someone as far as the world is considered is to die. To cease existing. Paul here is promising us that we do not cease to exist, but in fact our body, when it is destroyed, we are brought into God's presence to live in a home that he made for us himself. The author of everything good and beautiful has created something for you in the life to come, an eternal home, an eternal glory that we share with him. And so if the best is ahead of us, how afraid of life can we be? How afraid of death can we be? So far, this sounds to me like we should all just go ahead and hurry up and die. I mean, what's the point of, of doing anything here in this life then? If everything will get better after life in this tent, right? Why be here at all? Paul sees that argument coming and answers it in, in verse 9 in chapter 5. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What this is saying is that the point of all life, both here and in the beyond, is to please God. We are created for him. We aim to please him knowing that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all give an account of the things that we did in this world, and that should scare you. It scares me. That is frightening. But for the believer, we have to remember what has already been promised. The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness which you are judged for by salvation. So then what is this judgment for? What is the purpose it says, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. The believer will receive good for the good that he has done. The wicked will receive punishment for their evil. The Bible talks very specifically about receiving reward in the life to come. And that's what he's alluding to here. There is an idea 
built into all the talk about heaven of reward for our work here. Now, what that looks like is probably different than what you or I could think of. What you're imagining right now is almost certainly wrong of what that reward might be like. Because in this eternal, heavenly, glorious, glorious realm, God has rewards for us that we can't wrap our minds around. And so the apostle makes no attempt to describe what those are because we couldn't understand them. But to know that we do receive a reward. Why does the apostle mention that? Why does the scripture in several different places talk about this idea of rewards in the life to come? Well, the point of it, I think, is this. What you do in this life matters. And he's trying to remind us of that, right? The ultimate heavenly reality, we need to set our sights on. But what you're doing right now absolutely matters. Our actions have eternal consequences. That's what he's showing us. The things that we do now are carried into eternity. Even the small things that we do, even the small decisions that we make count to God in eternity. In fact, there are no small things in the kingdom of God. There is no small decisions. There are no small actions. There are no small people in the kingdom of God. God uses the smallest things, in fact, for the greatest effect. Small things, like a few words. Like we said at the beginning, our words are powerful and our words matter. The words you use to teach others about the gospel whether you're actively teaching the gospel or if you're talking about work or football or school or whatever it is. The way that you talk teaches the gospel to the people around you, your husband, your wife, your kids, your coworkers, the strangers you meet on the street, you are preaching the gospel to at all times if you're a believer. You're telling people what the gospel has done in your life by the way you encounter and react with the world. We are constantly preaching. We need to be living with such a different set of values in this world that our lives look upside down to the world around us. We need to be so different that people question all the time, what is it about them? What on earth do they think that they're doing? Why would they ever set their goals this way? Why would they spend their money this way? Why would they spend their time this way? It shouldn't compute to the people around you. It comes from a whole different set of values. But that doesn't just come by us trying harder to make that happen. There's the catch. The answer is you don't just try harder to preach the gospel with all your decisions. That truth is there to remind you that your power in this world actually relies on the fact that you are powerless. Your power in this world relies on the fact that you are weak. That's what the gospel teaches us. We are, in, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We have to completely rely on Christ to do so. Well, guess what? We are incapable of living a Christian life as well. We have to rely on Christ, not our willpower. We need to learn to rest in Him and let Him work through us. 
by lifting up Christ above the horizons of our thoughts, right? By lifting him up, we fully rely on him as of greatest importance. And if you're struggling with that today, step one is to ask him for help to admit that you are weak. Because if any part of us is still not admitting that we are weak, if any part of us is relying on our strength to make the right decisions and do the right things, that part of us is not surrendered to Christ. Now that is difficult, and it will take the rest of your life to live out. I'll end there on that note. Let's pray.